Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Martin Woods. I'm the curator of maps here um, at the National Library of Australia, just in case you were confused which institution you were at. Um, as we begin, I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call our home. It's my very great pleasure to um, welcome Chris Fleet, too, to the National Library of Australia. Chris is the uh, MAPS curator. Is it curator of MAPS? MAPS curator? What is the title, Chris? MAP curator at the National Library of Scotland. And I met Chris um, gee, nearly 10 years ago at a conference in Edinburgh, a workshop actually that uh, he was involved in. And at the time, he was forging the way in terms of uh, new ways of getting maps online. And, uh, uh, you know, you have to say at National Library of Scotland, if you haven't visited the National Library of Scotland website, free plug, Chris, um, it really is a great pleasure to use. And the way in which it now combines historical mapping with current mapping uh, is a revelation. Um, so anyway, um, you know, he and the National Library of Scotland has made great strides, as has the National Library of Australia. So I'm, I'm really pleased to have him here uh, and to talk about um, new ways of getting old maps online. But tonight we're going to be talking about the Bartholomew Archive and, uh, and its role at the epicentre, I think, of imperial mapping. And I wanted to make a couple of points before uh, we call Chris up to the stage to talk to you. And, um, and that is about the reading public uh, of the early 20th century. And, and it was a map reading public, accustomed to using printed maps to follow geography and events and wars. And maps were a, an accepted part of life, from understanding the various conflicts of empire and the exploits of famous explorers and scientific expeditions to everyday use for travel and emerging tourism. The popular market for printed geography in Australia included maps and atlases for every taste and pocket. They were essential for school or adult conversation, comprising a universe divided into themes, from every aspect of physical geography to a worldview according to racial, religious, commercial, political, imperial interest. The science of cartography itself had found a place in public education, developed qualities seen as essential to national progress and the competing interests in which our side was naturally favoured. And our side was, of course, the British Empire. Contemporary newspaper advertising by booksellers and news agencies show how much of this product reached these shores. The National Library of Australia, for example, has over 500 atlases published in Britain between 1890 and 1914, most of them purchased or collected from Australian families. Bartholomew, Johnston, Philip, Stanford and Bacon were familiar names in businesses, schools and the family home and their output far exceeded that of a small band of local producers. And what was the nature of all this product? In sheer numbers, Bartholomew had a spread of products that by today's standards would be unthinkable. Geography recently extracted from artistic pursuits was at the center of imperial expansion and transformation. At the beginning of the new century, there were less blank spaces on maps. And as we will see, the relatively new discipline of geography 
had more to do than illustrate the roots of explorers, though this was still a popular source of publication. And as you will understand in more detail from Chris, the popular market for geography in Australia absorbed a diverse array of geographic products, and sometimes in surprising ways. Please welcome Chris to the stage. Well, thank you very much for that very helpful introduction, uh, Martin. And thank you, too, for the invitation to speak here this evening. Uh, I can say without any doubt I'd never given a talk so far away uh, from home or to such a large audience uh, here this evening. So I'm extremely grateful to the National Library of uh, Australia uh, for the invitation and uh, to you all for coming here this evening. Now I'd like to begin uh, my story by telling you first of all uh, about John George Bartholomew who at the age of 21 in 1881 sailed to Australia aboard the Sabrean. He had hoped the sea voyage and warmer climate might help his chronic tuberculosis, but sadly, it brought only a temporary respite. He departed on the 22nd of September. The voyage took 11 weeks. He arrived at Melbourne on the 8th of December. He spent two months in Australia before the voyage home, making a number of useful contacts. Amongst other things, he visited the Melbourne publisher, George Robertson, and gathered local maps. Although John George would never return to Australia, the visit was clearly important for him, both in arousing his natural geographic curiosity as well as appreciating its commercial potential. For John George, commercial geography was an imperial tool to encourage pupils, people, British imperial citizens of the future to emigrate to other parts of the empire, solving perceived problems of overpopulation in Britain and hopefully avoiding the need for compulsory emigration. In 1884, when he was aged only 24 years old, John George founded the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, supported by the daughter of David Livingstone, Agnes Livingstone Bruce, who herself was a keen geographer with an interest in Africa. Now, although RSGS was less assertively imperial than its counterpart, the Royal Geographical Society in London, there was an enduring interest in exploration and colonialism, and we'll see a bit more of this later on. We learn more of John George's attitude to empire in a paper delivered in 1885 in a meeting of the British Association entitled Northwest Australia, a sketch of the results of recent exploration and the scope of the country for commercial development. And a map accompanying this was published in the Scottish Geographical Magazine in 1887. And as he wrote, the commercial geography of our British colonies should be made a subject of primary importance in school education so that the children of our working classes may thus become familiar with the advantages and disadvantages to be realized in living in India, Australia, Canada, Cape Colony, 
or any other parts of the British dominions. John George enjoyed close association with many leading academics and travelers of the day, such as the explorers Ernest Shackleton, Dr. William Bruce, Henry Morton Stanley, Cecil Rhodes, and Harry Johnston, uh, whose map this is, and who Bartholomew published a map for. Harry Johnston holding extremely, assertively imperial attitudes. And John George also assumed full responsibility for the Bartholomew firm in 1888, a firm whose success globally depended on finding new markets, particularly through the British Empire, and of publishing cartography in bulk. So what I'd like to do this evening is share some of Bartholomew's mapping of Australia with you from the time of John George Bartholomew. What did they publish? Who did they publish this with? Who were the main audiences? What were the main messages that the maps were trying to convey? And what impact did these maps have? As the English academic geographer Brian Harley wrote in the 1980s, as much as guns and warships, maps have been the weapons of imperialism. And I'd like to pose the question, how far is this the case for Bartholomew's mapping of Australia? And to help answer this question, we need to go on a brief journey First of all, into the Bartholomew family and firm, and then their archive before we return back here to Australia. Now, the Bartholomew family had their own life cycle over six generations and two centuries. An infant stage, working for other princes and publishers in the early 19th century. Their adulthood, in the time of John George, as a fully-fledged cartographic publishing company but then their eventual decline and takeover in the late 20th century. The early Bartholomews were engravers. George Bartholomew was the first engraver in the family, and they trained the early Bartholomews with some of the finest engravers in Edinburgh, by the 19th century becoming internationally respected for engraving, printing, and publishing. George Bartholomew worked with the firm of Lizards, both Daniel and his son William Home Lizards, who was a talented painter as well as engraver and etcher. His son, John Bartholomew Sr., the first John Bartholomew, followed his father as an engraver and completed his apprenticeship with William Lizards in 1826. But he went on to work as an engraver for many other Edinburgh publishers. It's likely he would have been aware of Lazar's General School Atlas, uh, shown here for the title page, uh, a typical mid-19th century decorative atlas, reflecting something of Lazar's own skills as an artist and engraver, and keeping up with the latest discoveries uh, in parts of the empire. John Bartholomew Jr. trained with his father and then with the German geographer, August Petermann, who was then in London. And John Bartholomew spent two years with Petermann. In the second half of the 19th century, German cartography was widely admired for its technical 
and intellectual sophistication. And uh, John Bartholomew's son and grandson both spent formative parts of their apprenticeship years in Germany. But it's really under John George Bartholomew that things enter a dramatically new phase. In spite of his poor health, John George continually drove himself and the firm to rise above the odds, expanding production, innovating, introducing new techniques. And through John George, most of all, Bartholomew became something of a household name around the world. It's difficult to distill John George's many achievements down. He introduced new business methods and organization. The bulk of our archive that we'll look at in a moment dates from his time in the 1880s. And he moved the firm to share the printing works with Thomas Nelson at Park Road in Edinburgh, renaming the firm as the Edinburgh Geographical Institute, very much emulating the Pertus Geographical Institute in Leipzig that he so admired. Now, both of these firms were, after all, commercial cartographers, but always with greater aspirations. For John George, cartography was something of a high art, a way of visualizing the world in new ways, in appreciating it better. And for him too, there was something of a moral imperative through maps, of making the world a better place through cartography. Now, cartographers can, of course, create new uh, geographic realities quite as much as they represent it. And reasonably enough, uh, Bartholomew struggled uh, to enjoy their address, as you'll see on, on the street of Gibbet Lone, uh, which you can see uh, here, which is the site of uh, uh, where criminals were formerly hung. No matter, as Bartholomews were the chief people producing all the maps of Edinburgh, within a year or two, they were on a new street, <laughs> appearing on all their maps, uh, the street of, of Park Road. And this was their address uh, for the whole time they were there. And as you'll see as well from this map, they, um, oh, excuse me, I'll just go forward again. They shared uh, their premises, this, these huge publishing works, were the publishing works for Thomas Nelson, who will come back to a little later on, who were a major uh, point of entry for Bartholomew into the Australian market. Now, just to continue on our uh, perambulation, this is Duncan Street, where Bartholomew moved from 1911 and where the firm remained until 1995. John George's son, uh, John, who is often known as Ian uh, Bartholomew, studied um, cartography uh, in Leipzig, in Paris, and Edinburgh, and he had distinguished war service with the Gordon Highlanders. He completed the Times Survey Atlas that had begun under, under his father and went on to produce the mid-century edition of the Times Atlas of the World, a leading world reference atlas. His sons, in turn, uh, John C., Peter, and Robbie, who you can see on the, uh, the right-hand side of this uh, director's board meeting, were the last of the six generations of the family in the business. And they continued to maintain the firm 
among world-leading map publishers until their retirement in 1980, when Reader's Digest initially bought out the firm and then News International acquired them in 1985. So with that brief canter through the family, let's have a look at the archive itself, which is one of the most extensive private publisher archives um, relating to maps that survives in a public institution. Now, this slide may seem a lot to take in at first glance, but don't worry, we're going to return to it a few times as we go on a, a clockwise perambulation, looking at the, the different components of the archive itself. There's 110 meters of the main business record. And amongst other things, in many StatSep ledgers, these record in neat black handwriting seemingly every minuscule detail of production, every quantifiable detail, all cross-referenced and indexed. There's a printing record from the 1870s. Bartholomew kept a copy of everything that they printed, everything. Not only that, they very helpfully recorded, as you'll see here, things like the number of copies and the date that things were printed. And we'll see this uh, again and again with our Australian mapping, very useful um, from a, a reference point of view. In the last 10 years, we've had a large program to conserve the printing record. The printing record survives in 177 of these huge, unwieldy uh, volumes. There's also 50 boxes of it as well, and it goes forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards across long sets of shells. And what we've done is to clean uh, the maps, remove them from these volumes, and put them as flat sheets inside acid-free boxes. There's also a, a reference uh, library, 1,100 books relating to printing, mapping, gazetteers, and atlases. There's then around 20,000 printed and proof sheets of maps in these categories down here. Bartholomew were desk-based cartographers. They never went out and about doing first-hand surveying. Everything they gathered, they gathered from other people. And this involved other people's maps. But there's also extensive proof mapping. And the proof mapping is also a really useful insight into the map compilation process uh, at this time. This records the corrections and revision to map plates. Many map plates had a long life cycle of corrections and revisions and updates over many decades. And you can see for a map uh, like this within the pocket atlas, blue is usually used for deletions and, uh, and red for additions. And this would then be taken to a copper plate, which would then be corrected for a new printing. And the final components in the archive are the copper plates. We have 3,000 of these uh, copper plates and 6,000 glass plates, the copper plates being used for the engraved masters, the glass plates being the lithographic masters, which we'll come to in a moment, used for the block printing of particular colors. 
In contrast to many cartographic firms who abandoned copper plate engraving during the 19th century, Bartholomew kept it going until the final quarter of the 20th century. Their last copper plate engraver only retired in 1976. And they firmly believe, with some justification, that it gave a better quality for the detailed black line work and lettering. But of course, Bartholomew were famous for their layer coloring. And they effectively followed a hybrid procedure, printing the black line work from a copper plate and then using lithographic stones or lithographic glass plates or lithographic plastic for the blocks of color to build up often successive layers of color for the composite map itself. The accurate registration of these multiple color pools which taxed cartographers and Bartholomew in the 19th century was something that they, they quickly developed their own successful solutions for. And from our perspective today, it's very easy to overlook the huge impact and advantages of these new lithographic techniques. It allowed a set of base maps to be easily overlaid with any number of thematic distributions. Existing maps could be easily transferred, altered, and repackaged. Australia, if you like, shifted into the center of a world map that might have been formerly centered on Britain. And cartographic detail and its, its uh, revision was quick and easy. We see this too in a moment for the Australian mapping, where a standard base map often has many different incarnations. Bartholomew always reused and recycled the same map over and over again, if they could. And perhaps most importantly, for color lithography, stunningly attractive color mapping could now be generated in large print runs at a fraction of the cost of the former engraved and hand-colored maps that had been the mainstay of cartography through to the 19th century. So, with that extended uh, introduction, it's about time we looked at Bartholomew's Australian mapping. And what I have done is to extract from the printing record listing, the various maps of Australia that they published over the first half century of the printing record, from the 1870s through to the 1920s. And I tried to categorize them by the type of publication that these maps were, were printed for. Now, I should admit uh, at this stage that whilst I do profess to know about Bartholomew's maps and the archive, I have very little expertise at all with Australian mapping. Uh, and the archive doesn't give the final publication details. So it's been quite an interesting piece of detective work for me. And I have found the answers for, for most of the mapping, but there's still a few question marks, and hopefully, therefore, things which I'll point out in passing, which you may well uh, know the answers to. So at the beginning, there are a few things that we'll have a look at that weren't maps at all. A very small number of sheet maps, in other words, maps produced as a standard publication on their own, as a physical artifact. But the real impact of Bartholomew's mapping was inside bound volumes. 
including handbooks, directories, encyclopedias, journals, and atlases, both general atlases and school atlases. And this is a really important value of the archive in itself. Very few libraries and not ours have been able to catalogue the maps are that there are within books. In other words, um, the, the maps on specific pages. Within books, we might have a record for the book as a whole, but rarely the maps within them. And the archive allows us to find those maps and then track down the books themselves. So following the formation of the private firm of John Bartholomew and Company in 1889 and their move to the new premises that we saw at Park Road in Edinburgh, it signaled a new period of rapid change. Printing volumes grew, new market opportunities were exploited, while the company steadily moved from printing for specific customers and other publishers to so the status of being a publisher in their own right. This carried greater risks, but it was much more profitable. Non-cartographic printing, as we see here in the printing record, these are luggage labels, and they produced trade advertisements, book illustrations, even things like election tickets, all sorts of printing. Uh, this was gradually replaced more and more during John George's time by the printing and publishing of maps. But there are a few non-map uh, items of interest from the point of view of, uh, of uh, Australia. This is a form letter from the Edinburgh offices of the Commercial Bank of Australia from 1886. And one of a few, there's uh, about four, um, that Bartholomew printed for other Australian institutions, but many of which had offices um, within Edinburgh. Edinburgh was effectively um, the, main, the main registered office, and they were using Bartholomew as being uh, a local printer. But this is not the kind of thing people expect to find in a map company archive. This kind of printing rapidly declined under John George. Now this graph showing overall revenue uh, profits and sales over the period from 1893 through, uh, through to the First World War is intended to show uh, a few things. And the first is that the contribution of Bartholomew's own publications that we can see by the, the gray line gradually rising over, over here. This continually grew over time, but margins were tight and there were losses in the early 1890s and in 1900. Bartholomew's job registers typically record in more detail about three to 400 printing orders each year which included their own publications. And these orders range from tiny print runs of a few hundred items, sometimes to massive orders of over 100,000 items. Those were the thrilling ones of Bartholomew, the ones that really, uh, really brought in the cash. These were especially from railway companies. But on average, print runs of five to 10,000 were typical. And this gives a useful context for some of the figures for the Australian mapping we're about to see. Now Bartholomew printed uh, a couple of sheep maps, uh, one relating, uh, as we see here, to a map of the city of Sydney. 
And here, as we'll see as we go through, the National Library here has very kindly gathered together some of these items, including this one outside, allowing uh, them to be seen in the flesh, as it were. And this detailed uh, street map, compiled at 1 to 20,000, was published by John Sands, based at George Street in Sydney. And it seems Sands compiled the map, largely from recent maps by the Surveyor General and other official surveys, perhaps as well as other maps by Sands, who himself was a prolific uh, printer of maps. And as well as its, its aesthetics, it also includes things like uh, administrative boundaries, and quite interestingly, too, showing things like soundings uh, in the harbour. And the other, the other uh, sheet map is this commercial map of Australia. Now, this was actually published by Bartholomew in something of their dramatic debut uh, into the Australian market. And it reappeared under different titles, including Bartholomew's new map of Australia. Um, I've got a couple of details here. There's nice insets of, uh, of some of the larger towns. And uh, it includes a, a clearly colored overlay of things like railways uh, in red and telegraph lines in black and steamer routes. Some of uh, this was stripped away for Bartholomew's reduced survey map of Australia in 1899, which was an identical scale, exactly the same uh, base mapping. So really just a, a couple of, uh, of significant sheet maps. Let's have a look at the books and bound volumes. And I tried to order these very roughly from less cartographic to more cartographic works. In other words, the initial volumes we'll look at are largely pages of letterpress text rather than maps. And as we go through the later publications, tending to be the atlases, uh, almost completely maps with a small uh, chunk of letterpress text. So first of all, but some bespoke mapping, quite interesting bespoke mapping for non-cartographic customers, in this case, on land acquisition. The maps illustrating the properties belonging to the New Zealand and Australian Land Company from 1892. And some might interpret this as a map illustrating the imperial appropriation of territory. Uh, this was one of the most successful of the land companies with offices in Scotland as well as in, uh, in Sydney and Dunedin. And they acquired pastoral and agricultural land in New Zealand and Australia. At this time, there were primarily New Zealand land holdings, but these were soon to be acquired by the New Zealand government. And its major interests then in the 20th century uh, were very much in Australia. A closely related type of mapping from my perspective in terms of, of function, extending uh, European agriculture, can be found in the map of the runs of the Australian Livestock Company. And I uh, have a, a more detailed uh, part of the, the, the Barrow Creek area in Northern Territory, which had been uh, settled by Europeans from the 1870s, with sheep overlanded. Uh, and there were conflicts 
uh, with the indigenous uh, population. Quite a different type of mapping aesthetically and in terms of uh, and the overall purpose is this calendar map, just 150 copies of this produced in uh, the Second World War for the National Mutual Life Association of Australia, perhaps something for their offices to, uh, to put up on the wall or maybe uh, as a promotional thing for customers. The world colored, as you'll see, an intensely saturated uh, imperial magenta. Let's look at handbooks and directories. And the minerals map of uh, New South Wales, very much mapping resources for exploitation, was issued with Gordon and Gotch's The Australian Handbook. This directory you'll almost certainly know better uh, than I do. It was very much a practical guide to the economics of imperialism. And from its adverts appears to be as much directed at Great Britain uh, as Australia. Bartholomew continued to print around 1,500 copies of maps for this directory during the 1890s. Some really interesting uh, mapping in here. This is the printing record sheet showing all of the maps on one sheet, which would be bound up and packaged at different points in the directory itself, uh, including uh, this map here, South Australia, uh, showing public works. I have an enlarged uh, detail of this, which uh, in includes water supplies and uh, government-controlled water districts around Adelaide, as well as, interestingly, the location of lighthouses with the star uh, symbol, publicly owned lighthouses um, under local control at this time. The major large British encyclopedias were all also very keen to include Bartholomew's maps, including the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now this, I would argue, is, is a more topographic information map rather than with any uh, assertively imperial agenda. Uh, but we also hold some early photos in the archive uh, in this case showing the Encyclopedia Britannica leaving Duncan Street. Quite a, a nice reminder of uh, the practicalities of map and atlas distribution methods at this time. Another uh, directory publication with, with Bartholomew's maps was the Statesman's Yearbook, uh, which in 1910, as uh, we see here, uh, showed the new federal capital here. And now there's an assortment here of, of maps which are there in the printing record, which I have yet to track down the source volume for, but were probably directory-style publications. No libraries uh, have these maps catalogued, and this implies that they're there within other, other volumes. Commercial map of Australia, actually a smaller scale than the commercial map that we saw uh, the second one in. During the 1890s, Bartholomew also produced maps of Australia for Thomas Nelson, who paid for the work in collaboration with Frank Lloyd and Company, a publisher with offices in Pitt Street in Sydney. 
And this included their federal map of Australia from 1897. Now this, if you've seen it, is a real blockbuster of a map. It's 115 centimeters wide, 110 centimeters high. Quite a small print run of 1,000 copies, but reissued with practically no changes other than the title as the Commonwealth Map of United Australia uh, in 1903, with a similar small print run. A map, I think, that deserves to be better known. And Bartholomew recycled the sectional maps, as you'll see here, the, uh, the maps around the edge. A sectional map here zooming in from the federal map of Australia. They'd recycle these from the Royal Atlas and Gazetteer of Australia, published by Thomas Nelson, which we'll come to in a, a moment. So you can just see by glancing quickly at these two and toggling between them. The color style changes, but that's a, just a, a simple lithographic matter. And then six years later, they printed 10,000 copies of the perfect miniature map of Australia from 1903. This is a, a small map, postcard-sized map, at one to 10 million scale. And uh, again, must have been intended for some type of, uh, of publication rather than released uh, in its own right is what I, I mean to say. There's then the publishing for the academic, the learned society journals. And these really had a, a, a larger impact than we might imagine. Uh, the Scottish Geographical Magazine published John George's Western Australia map, as we saw right at the beginning in 1887. They continued to publish many other maps of Australia over the following decades, including this rainfall map from the, the long lost days when it used to rain uh, <laughs> around here, and uh, a map of uh, Australia for Albert Calvert's scientific exploring expedition of 1895 to 6. Uh, with, as you'll see, unexplored areas uh, helpfully all marked and letter-coded uh, in pink. Now, I'm sure you'll know all about Calvert, but I had to look him up. Calvert was an explorer, writer, a mining consultant, whose expeditions at this time didn't go uh, at all well. His brother died in his 1895 expedition, whilst in his 1896 expedition, two of the party were lost. Uh, in the desert, and Calvert was publicly derided for heavy financial losses. But this is just in advance uh, of all that, when it's all about to happen. And the Scottish Geographical Magazine continued its assertively imperial line with enthusiastic papers from people like the Colonial Agent for Northwest Australia, with its subtitle, A British State in the Making, How the Plan for Empire is Being Filled In. From 1890, Bartholomew produced maps for a significant new uh, Australian atlas. And there's a beautiful copy of this on display uh, outside the auditorium. This was published uh, by Thomas Nelson, the Royal Atlas and Gazetteer of Australia from 1890. 3,500 copies, octavo-sized uh, volume with 28 plates, including uh, maps of the colonies and of the cities, uh, as well as what was by then a standard commercial map of the world. 
uh, but centered in this case on Australia. And this atlas evolved into the Royal Australasian World Atlas in 1892. Print run growing here. Things are looking good. Published by Thomas Nelson, again, and under a number of more local imprints in particular cities. Slightly more plates, 34 plates, and featuring a diagram, uh, as you can see on this side, on the left-hand side, um, which on the one hand uh, purported to show time zones around uh, the world, but far more obviously showing, as it says in the bottom line here, the sun is always shining on some part or other of the Queen's dominions. But that said, the main content of this atlas was topographic or reflecting physical geography without, I feel, any overt imperial motive. And this volume, oh, my, my text has jumped around, my apologies here. It all looked great beforehand. Um, what I wanted to show was the approximate print runs over time of this atlas. And you'll have to believe me that if you top them all up, up to 1915, it comes to 126,000 copies. Really, really significant uh, for Bartholomew and in terms of the impact. But it's important not to forget the many world atlases that Bartholomew was producing to, including Australia, such as the Time Survey Atlas of the World. Originally published uh, with maps by the German firm of, uh, of Valhagen and uh, Kleising. But then the proprietor of the Times spoke with John George Bartholomew, and Bartholomew started in 1920 their long association with producing um, maps for the Times Atlas. They were hugely honored to do this. Um, the first consignment of the Atlas leaving Duncan Street was an occasion for a major, uh, an, another photograph. But it was a huge job, completely new plates, 112 color maps, each large folio maps. But I would argue if we look at these, these general uh, world atlases, that it's only really when we turn to school atlases, educational atlases, that the imperial agenda comes even more, I think, to the fore than for nearly all these other publications. And the late 19th century saw a publishing bonanza for school atlases. Three important developments, a rise of geography as a discipline within universities and schools, itself very uh, closely associated with empire. Schooling became compulsory for the working classes in 1880 and free from 1892 onwards. Huge number of pupils all of a sudden. And there was a real official drive to include the empire and geographical knowledge of it for teachers. In 1880, the Department of Education revised the instructions to school inspectors, requiring them to pay most attention to teaching on the English colonies. And the King's scholarship examination for teachers always started with British possessions in the world, including their products and trade routes. Now Bartholomew had produced school atlases from the 1860s, but not really uh, 
in, in, any, in any large number there. The School Atlas of Australia was published by uh, Phillips and included mapping by John Bartholomew, Jr. And we see a real attempt, a real more definite attempt to focus on the, the Australasian uh, market with the school hand atlas, the Australasian edition of 1895. Now this was, again with Bartholomew, a bit of publishing trickery. Uh, what they had published for many years was the, the school hand atlas with its array of map plates going around the world. And all they did in the school hand atlas was simply rejig the order. So these plates for <laughs> Australia and New Zealand suddenly jumped to be fairly early on in the sequence. But other than that, it was just an identical uh, atlas. And it was criticized, increasingly criticized by people in Australia for not being that helpful in the schools. And this uh, shows a, a typical plate from the school hand atlas. From 1915, Bartholomew produced a completely new set of maps in a new atlas with content derived from Carl Reginald Cramp, who we see here on the, uh, the title page, who was an Englishman by birth. He spent most of his life in Australia, worked as an historian and a school's inspector. And Cramp was keen on local geography, maps giving priority to Australia, as well as physical, political, and industrial maps of, uh, of New Zealand, detailed maps that showed things like economics, the, the, the commercial potential of places, which may look quite everyday to our eye, but a completely new departure in terms of, uh, of school atlases to show this kind of what you might call thematic overlay of things like coal mines uh, and gold mines. But the most important part, at least for Cramp, was a detailed appendix of historical maps with explanatory notes which illustrated Australia's discovery and exploration. Now, before we look at these, just keep this image in your mind too, because we'll see it again quite soon. The localizing of geography was very much within Cramp's own quite jingoist and imperialist narratives, as well as his staunch allegiance to the British Empire. In the historical maps in the Australasian school atlas, Australia was represented as an empty and black country before its discovery and population by the British. Before this point, Australia is not just terra incognita, due to its existence outside uh, of British geographical knowledge, but also a land empty uh, of, of inhabitants. Human history, school children perhaps were taught, had not really begun in Australia until the arrival of their countrymen at its shores. And after the arrival of the explorers, the colonized parts of the country were increasingly illuminated in yellow, and according to the maps, Australia's history begins. As Cramp himself wrote, the curtain of darkness was slowly rolled back uh, in the southwest of the continent. By 1875, Australia was represented as fully explored, and the color black had been completely eliminated. Now, interestingly enough, the Oxford School Atlas that was also published by Oxford University Press in 1922 also had a map showing 
the exploration of Australia. Just showing how the same subject can be presented in a way that gives quite a different impression with the same raw material. Same kind of chronological uh, narrative, but not necessarily through the same explicit uh, blocks of color that Cramp was so keen to do. And this atlas was keen to reuse, this is the plate that uh, you kept in mind, to reuse several of the plates from the, uh, the Australasian school atlas on economic geography and uh, on things like economic potential. This one's come out okay. Now, you don't need to read all of this at all. It's just the general message. If we tot up all of the school atlases that Bartholomew were involved with, then we'll see this comes to 120,000 copies from really the, uh, the 1890s. We don't have numbers for the earlier atlas. From the 1890s, through to the, the beginning of the Second World War. Real large quantity of, of stuff, Bartholomew publishing, getting out there and being read, and the bulk of this being published for Oxford University Press's Australasian School Atlas. As we'll see here, Cramp's Australasian School Atlas continue to be published right the way through to the Second World War without any changes to the main historical narrative plates. So was there an imperial agenda? Now, I did say, to let myself off the hook, I would pose the question uh, rather than necessarily answer it, as I do feel the answer is a something of a yes, but no, uh, but yes sort of thing. <laughs> I'm a sitter on the fence, as you can tell. If we follow Brian Harley's arguments, we can clearly see that Bartholomew's maps encouraged the exploration uh, and conquest of Australia. They encouraged the appropriation of land in quite a general as well as quite a specific way. Coloring the world a possessive British pink, ignoring indigenous names, coining new British imperial ones, representing inhabited landscapes as morally blank, empty deserts, as black zones of darkness, awaiting exploration, easily acquired, divided, and ruled. And whilst it's easy to say all these things, the narrative, and a narrative like this is quite simplistic. It focuses on recurring sets of cartographic features like color, cartouches, place names, boundaries, and blank spaces. And it's important that we try to go beyond these obvious and quite self-evident statements to recognize the greater complexities and contradictions involved in the process. For the, the academic Matthew Edney, who made a monumental survey of the great trigonometrical survey of British India, maps were a metaphor and an agent of British imperial and epistemological supremacy, but they also reflected many other concerns, both ideological and religious. They were the results of negotiation, mediation, contested subjects between surveyors, governors, and investors, not just reflecting, if you like, the colonizers and the colonized. Once we look at the processes of cartography, including production, circulation, and consumption, and the multiple players involved in 
creating the map content, we think we get a more complex, nuanced picture of imperial mapping, which defy any attempts to reduce it to a single kind of sledgehammer framework. The purposes behind many Bartholomew maps in this period can certainly be seen to promote different aspects of the imperial agenda. But they don't do so simply. And it has to be said that don't, some don't support any particular uh, imperial narrative at all. It's important to remember Bartholomew were often printing other people's ideas and sketch maps. And for publishers who themselves had a strong role over the content of their atlas, the idea of authorship is a blended one. And Bartholomew were often simply the purveyors of other people's ideas. But I have to say, my final, my final take on this, it's unavoidably true to me that those looking for examples of exploration, expropriation or control of land, settlement, conquest, extraction of resources and wealth, and inculcating that idea of imperial stewardship and citizenship of another country in their readers, young and old, Bartholomew's maps show it all. Thank you very much. stay up here. Thanks, Chris, because we're going to ask um, for questions from the floor. And, and please, um, thanks very much for that uh, fascinating presentation and conversation. We, we would like to continue, uh, if we can, in the few minutes that we have left. Um, if you can raise your hand, um, a microphone will be brought to you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, you mentioned one map there which you had, I think it was the 1897 federal map of Australia, yeah, showing yeah. the different states and everything, yes. and you also had North and South Islands of New Zealand. And you said that was reissued in 1903 with no changes and called something else, Commonwealth, uh, I think, Commonwealth Map of Australia. Yeah. Did you still have New Zealand on it? Ah, now that's a good question. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I have uh, an image of that with me, and I'm afraid that's something that I'll I'll have to check because that would have been a very obvious anachronism, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, what I did was to focus in on the detail of a few of the sectional maps and saw no changes uh, for those. But if you were to leave me an email address. I can check that and get back to you because it would interest me, but I'll need to check that back in Edinburgh. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process of uh, actually getting the map? Because it always seemed to be really tiny, tiny writing. And I, I just wonder how do they achieve that? The really small lettering. Yes. Yes, yeah, well, it, it's interested me greatly and we're lucky that in the archive, some of the engravers who worked with Bartholomew left their 
uh, engraving equipment, and all of it was done under extremely high magnifications. We have a magnifying glass that was used for engraving, and we often get it out to people to look at, because if you look at anything under it, it really is enormous. And there's photographs that survive in the archive, too, that show engravers at work, all of them uh, usually bent double with a, a, giant, a giant magnifying glass. And yeah, they really had minuscule control over their tiny instruments to get the detail that they needed. Uh, engravers were the most highly paid in uh, Bartholomew. There was a seven-year apprenticeship to uh, become an engraver. They're very much the elite within the firm, and it's because it, it really required skills of the highest order that lithography as a different kind of technique didn't really require. Um, Thank you for the talk. A um, couple of questions. Um, I noticed from some of those tables that they had done, say, for school, um, maps, uh, revisions over 40 or 50 years, is much evidence that they really did true revisions as opposed to just literally printing what they'd done 30 or 40 years before. Um, and I note that there were obviously some, for example, the Federal Capital Territory, I think, were identified pretty early. Um, and, and my other question is, um, is the, did you come across any sort of odd um, name changes or errors beyond the one that you mentioned about their uh, premises in Edinburgh. And the final quick point I'll make um, about that map from 1903 to do with New Zealand, I suspect New Zealand still was in there because the way the Commonwealth Constitution was drafted is they could join later and indeed New Zealand had a Royal Commission in about 1903 as to whether to join. So I suspect the issue was still live at the time. Just yes. uh, but I'm not sure about that. Okay. Well, that's, that's uh, really helpful on the final point. Um, yeah, I think I can't really give you good answers in terms of the, the detail. What I've tried to do is look at, if you like, the broad brush picture. And I think the weakness I have is just not really having an eye for the kind of detail that matters for a place like this. Scotland, for me, you know, is the place where the detail matters, and I do... I, I'm able to go into the detail and look at that. What we are very keen to do, and it's something I hope we'll do over the next few years, and not the next decade, but in the next few years, is make available a lot more of this mapping, because I feel that if it was made available to you as an audience and others here on this side of the world, you would be able to make a lot more of it than I have done, and spot those kind of details, and spot things where I just blandly say, oh, they're just the same map, you know, there may be details that did matter and, uh, and uh, did change. So uh, it's something that uh, digitization is very helpful for uh, because a lot of the real interest for this kind of mapping is obviously here rather than uh, in Edinburgh. Victor down the front there, Sharon. Thank you. I, I'm interested in where uh, the firm of Bartholomew got the detail for the local maps of Australasia. For example, you showed us that remarkable 1890 map of Sydney with this huge amount of detail in, and it just seems remarkable that that's published the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question, and I didn't really 
cover that. Now, Bartholomew were jobbing printers before they were cartographers and publishers, and sometimes they just received an order from someone who would have assembled the lithographic stone which they just printed. And for that John Sands map of the city of uh, Sydney in 1890, it's clearly not compiled by Bartholomew. I can tell just by looking at the style of it. All they did was to print it um, for, for Sands and the, the, you know, there's an economic transaction. And I don't really know why, but that is the, the, the line on, on, on that one. Now, Bartholomew did build up their own stock, if you like, of cartographic knowledge, but it was always at a relatively small scale. In other words, that map of the city of Sydney, it's very unusual to have something at street level like that. Most of the maps of the continents of Australia or a whole colony, one or two insets of the cities, but never descending down into the kind of detail where they needed to get out there and revise the information firsthand, and there were changes going on down on the ground that any local who was buying the maps would have noticed. And at a smaller scale, you can get away with a lot less in terms of the updating and major things in terms of you know, changes to uh, colony boundaries or if there was an extension of a railroad or something like that. They needed to keep abreast of that. But broadly, they could do that by looking at the um, adjacent publications, either by commercial publishers or by buying the, uh, the Department of Lands and Survey, or sometimes the uh, individual, um, if you like, state uh, colonial surveys themselves. And there's copies of all of that material in the archive. Bartholomew's attitude was everyone else's material they could plunder happily, uh, provided they redrew it, or else they would have ended up with copyright infringement. And I think from our eyes today, it seems like they sail pretty close to the wind. Um, in terms of everyone else's information. But the compilations are fascinating, a fascinating thing, and it's only really we find for some of their maps closer to home in Edinburgh that they really got out and about and created maps that were demonstrably new rather than simply uh, compilations of everyone else's cartography. We've got time for one more question before we must close. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, a very sort of nerdy question about projections. Did they always stick to Mercator or that was just something they copied? Because some of those maps look to be other projections. Were they into the detail like that? Yeah, sorry, the, the question is, did the projection matter for the maps and, and did it matter for Bartholomew? That, that's your, your question really. Yeah, yeah, I think that it certainly did. Um, I think that Bartholomew were very keen on shapes and, and sizes from an aesthetic point of view, rather than necessarily making any other overt points with a lot of their more detailed mapping. I mean, the standard imperial map of the world, as I think has been well, well uh, known, deliberately extended the parts of the world that mattered from a, a British imperial perspective. And the projection for things like that is hugely importance in, in itself. I think that what they did try and do in some of their school atlases was alter the projection. And there's a page that gives guidance on projections, but more in terms of relative size. Uh, you may not have uh, seen it, and uh, it might take me a little while to 
backtrack and uh, show it. But in the um, Oxford University Press, uh, 1922 um, uh, atlas, which I now will fail to find, uh, if we can find it out outside, I think. Uh, anyway, there's a, a little inset of England and Wales with a huge Australia, and that was very much intended for the audience from both here and back at home to try and appreciate relative size. And for things like that, they would have tried to show accurate representations of the size themselves. But I don't think I can give you any cleverer uh, answer than that. It's not as if they had a rule book of a particular projections to go for, but they were well aware of the value of projection themselves in the mapping. Thanks, Chris. Thanks very much. And um, uh, thanks again for an extraordinary, uh, entertaining uh, uh, evening. And uh, it really has been interesting to get an insight into the Bartholomew archive. Um, and I'm, I'm afraid we have run out of time. Um, I'd like you to um, uh, join me in thanking Chris in just a moment. I will mention two things before we do um, close, and that is um, please enjoy the maps on the way out as you go. And also, if you have time, join Chris up in the bookshop. Um, there are two wonderful publications up there if you would like to buy them and sign them. Uh, Chris would happily sign them, Scotland Mapping the Islands and Scotland Mapping the Nation. Um, please join me in thanking Chris. <laughs>